All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by my colleague, Jack Farley. Jack, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Mike. Awesome. We miss you, Mark. Uh, but Jack, you and I have a really good show lined up for this week um, and a bunch of really interesting topics to, to talk about. We do. And what, Mike, before we start out, can I just say I've kind of um, am changing kind of my outlook and what I cover. So, you know, I'm on, the, on the, my show forward guidance. People know me as interviewing like macroeconomic people, finance. Mm. I'm totally changing it all. I'm rebranding myself as an AI expert. So can you can you actually introduce me as an AI expert? Because I'm just getting really into it. And, you know, I mean, sky's the limit, man. I think that makes a lot of sense. If you're listening to the VCs, the one takeaway is that you should pivot to AI. So yes. I think that's a really smart move, Jack. Yep. Yep. All right. Jack Farley, AI expert. This is going to be a good show. I actually want to start uh, this conversation this week in the realm of Bitcoin because it's actually been a very big week in terms of institutional movement in Bitcoin, which is a sentence that I haven't said probably in the last 18 months. So this week has been characterized by a slew of filings for a spot Bitcoin ETF. So the first one that happened at the tail end of last week was from BlackRock. Um, and that really surprised a lot of folks. BlackRock is obviously one of the largest, I think it is the largest asset manager in the world at $9 trillion, $9 trillion of AUM. Uh their record of ETF approvals by the SEC is 575 to 1. I like those odds, Jack. I don't know about you. If I was a betting man, you know, I would definitely like that. Um, and post BlackRock, we've sort of seen a slew of new spot ETF filings, notably from Invesco, which is one of the largest ETF issuers in the world at $1.4 trillion of AUM. Wisdom Tree, which has filed ETF applications in the past at $90.7 billion of AUM. And then Bitwise, which is sort of the crypto native index offer. Really, really love the folks over at over at Bitwise. Um, so the the just again the sort of background on this is that the SEC has rejected multiple spot ETF applications to date. We have gotten futures applications, but not spot applications because of concerns from the SEC that issuers cannot put uh, in place adequate surveillance sharing and they could not provide protection against market manipulation. So. It's been a big week for for the orange coin. We'll be we'll be fine. So here I'm gonna Jack. I'm actually gonna I'm gonna share some slides here to to walk you through because there's been significant change in the price action of Bitcoin here. And one chart that I want to draw people's attention to is something called Bitcoin dominance. So Bitcoin dominance is a measure of the percentage of overall crypto market cap that Bitcoin represents. So what we're looking at is a chart going all the way to pre 2015 here. And there are sort of two things to know about Bitcoin dominance. There is a secular trend to pick up on in terms of Bitcoin dominance, and then there's more of a cyclical trend. So the overall trend, the secular long-term trend of Bitcoin dominance is to go down. So obviously for a period of time, Bitcoin is one of the oldest and still the largest by market cap uh, cryptocurrencies out there. So especially pre-2017, 2018, you remember that little cycle, uh, it, was, it was really the only thing that you could buy, sell, hold, trade. Obviously, now there's a whole slew of different crypto assets. So over time, I think the the trend is you should can you should expect for market cap the 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 relative percent of Bitcoin that makes up crypto's market cap to trend down. So back in twenty you know sixteen twenty seventeen, it was ninety floating between ninety and ninety five percent. Today it's at about fifty one percent, but that's up quite a bit. The other thing to understand about Bitcoin dominance as a as an indicator is there's something cyclical that happens. So in general. You know, at the very peak of these sort of mini cycles that crypto goes on, that is when Bitcoin dominance is at its lowest. And then when the bear market sort of resumes, the Bitcoin dominance makes a comeback. The other thing to understand as well that might look a little funny looking at this chart is that Bitcoin dominance was going up through 2020 to 2021. And you might say, Jack, that hold on a second, Mike, you just said that Bitcoin dominance goes down during bull markets. That is true, but it goes down during the extreme peak frothiness of bull markets. What it does is after there's been a, a gigantic sort of leverage washout bear market, Bitcoin tends to be the first asset that gets a bid. The price appreciation in Bitcoin tends to get bid up as market makers, you know, they want to take more risk outside of just Bitcoin. Some of those uh, flows then move into altcoins. That creates the speculative mania blow off top. And then, um, and then we sort of wash, rinse, repeat. So... The idea here being we start to see Bitcoin dominance trend up since about the beginning of 2023. 
uh, which tends to be indicative that the worst is behind us and we're recovering. And sort of the the news about Bitcoin ETFs filings from BlackRock and Invesco and Wisdom Tree and Bitwise, that, that all sorts to point to the same thing. Right. The way I think about it is kind of like Apple, the stock, you know, your computer company, if, 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 you, if you've heard of it. Uh, in March of 2020, or in April of 2020, let's say, leading the charge out from the huge panic that was March 2020 were the mega cap tech stocks, Apple, Facebook, as it was then known, Google. Mm. And those really led the charge uh, for stocks higher. The smaller cap names, the riskier names, higher beta names, some of them were a little shaky on their legs, even though the bull market had, had already started. It wasn't until the market had asserted itself and investors felt a little more confident in the you know end of 2020, oh, maybe the recession is over and actually there's trillions of dollars floating around and uh, people are interested in buying stocks and they'll, they'll really buy anything. That is when the you know, electric vehicle companies that were you know, started by uh, people with a checkered past, let's say, those started uh, um, uh, rallying really hard. So it's, it's those higher beta names that lead in the tail end of the bear market. And that's when we saw sort of the SPAC boom in 2021. Um, when, you know, the, the, the Kathy Wood ETF, ARKK, uh, owned some of those very high beta names that led the way in the tail end of the bull market. And they're the you know last ones to surge, but they surge a ton. And they're the mm. first ones to crash. And that's when a bull market turns into a bear market. The stalwarts, the Apple, the Microsofts, they are pretty steady. And it's not until they start going down that you know, you're actually in sort of the, the middle phase of the bear market. And then when they stop going down, that's when we're in a new bull market. And that's exactly what we, we saw uh, in, in stocks. And I think it you know sounds like it works exactly the same way in crypto. I'm going to take a guess that uh, you know during the end of a bear market when it gets really ugly, Bitcoin outperforms all of these uh, more speculative currencies and crypto crypto assets. And but it, then it, it leads the way into a new bull market. So I, I don't know. I mean, I I really haven't been following this at all. But it seems like a pretty big deal. I mean, how how much is Bitcoin up? How much are we up? Yeah, so let's just take a look at the price action over the course of the last week. And exactly that relationship that you described as sort of the stalwart blue chips sort of leading the way, it's the same thing in crypto as well with Bitcoin sort of representing or sub being a substitute for Apple here. I think if you if you look at this chart just over the last five days, 20%. It's sort of, yeah, it's sort, it sort of illustrates exactly what I'm talking about here. So we've got the price of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Solana. So these are three of the the largest by market cap and sort of the stalwart layer ones in terms of crypto. And you can kind of see exactly what I just described. So the blue line here, which is Bitcoin, you can clearly see it leading the charge and it's outperforming Ethereum and Solana. That is that is the sign of, in crypto historically, that's been the sign of a healthy rally as opposed to less healthy rallies when you have uh, not necessarily Ethereum, but some of the less proven and tested layer ones or sort of the apps or you know sort of risky projects leading the way. That's indicative that people are being, it's an ex extremely risk on market. And more often than not, that's being driven by leverage. So the fact that we're looking at, you know, a very healthy market response to the news of the the spot filing for, you know, from BlackRock and all these other issuers, that's a, I would just say that's a very good thing. You kind of want to own Bitcoin at the beginnings and the ends of uh, bull markets. So not necessarily so much in the middle. Um so, you know, the, the other context here is that, and you've seen this in, uh, you know, the price of Coinbase and these very public enforcement actions that the SEC is taking against Binance, Binance US, uh, CZ himself, BAM Trading, and then Coinbase, of course, is that there's sort of been a wall of worry forming in terms of the regulatory climate for crypto in the United States. The only crypto at this point that is, uh, has not ever been accused of being a security by the SEC is Bitcoin itself. So... You know, this the the what the market seems to be interpreting from the filing of BlackRock's ET, spot ETF is not necessarily that this is guaranteed, but that BlackRock is very serious. Um, they don't yeah. fuff around with this sort of thing. And if they're filing for a spot Bitcoin ETF, it means they have they're they're pretty sure internally that they're going to get that application. So, I think I think this is what you're sort of starting to see is. Um, there was an idiosyncratic break to the downside in terms of crypto overall. It's just been an absolutely brutal market for the last 12 months, even much worse than what's going on in, in the NASDAQ or, or the S&P. And I think you're starting to just see a little bit of mean reversion here. Right. Yeah. BlackRock 
They tend to not shoot blanks. And even though to me, the difference between a futures ETF and a spot ETF, even though my personal preference is it's going to trade the exact same way, who cares? A lot of people care about it. And uh, the market moves on on what a lot of people a lot of people care about. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about the, the regulatory file. So there's first just, Coinbase. Yeah, go just, ahead. Just one quick note there, Jack, just as, as listeners of the show may be aware, there's, um, there's sort of a mechanical difference in between a futures and a spot ETF. So the ProShares futures uh, Bitcoin ETF that's been approved, there are roll costs. And these are the same mm. roll costs that you might see in an in the U.S. oil sort of ETF. And basically when you have a future, there's sort of an an expiry there. And what these ETF issuers have to do is roll that position, you know, sort of constantly forward. And there are costs for doing that. The contracts need to be repriced. So those sort of costs are sort of eaten away at your position over time to the point where it's actually very difficult to hold and own a, a commodity-based ETF. So that that would just be the difference that I would highlight. You first, I stand corrected. You are completely right. Uh, I'm going to take a guess that Bitcoin is typically in contango, which means every time you want to roll it forward, you got to pay just a little bit, you know, just, and you get sort of, you get chiseled away. And the ultimate example of this is look up UVXY, which owns short-term VIX futures, not an actual commodity. It's kind of more of an yeah. idea, uh, but it's super upward sloping and it's existed since probably like 2010 or something. And it's literally down 99.99999%, basically hundred percent. You lost all your money. Yeah. So I completely agree. And uh, yeah, that, that's a great point. Oh, but it's, okay. So on the crypto regulation field, okay. So the Binance news came out at the same week as the Coinbase news. Mm-hmm. And they're both troublesome and alarming, but I feel like people group them together and they're really not. Uh, because Binance is that news is really, really bad. And Coinbase is just kind of the SEC is asserting itself. But I mean, I, I heard uh, on an, another podcast, someone who's a giant crypto bear, you know, say, mm-hmm. say actually that they thought it might actually could be good, good for Coinbase and crypto because once the fee, you know, it's, oh, $50 million, $500 million. It's a, it's a bitter pill. But once the Coinbase has to pay a fine, it kind of gets legitimized. Whereas Binance is, I mean, uh, totally different story. Yeah, I would say it. It sort of is. It's they've been unfairly lumped together just because of the timing. But I agree, they're very different sort of allegations. So in terms of Coinbase, the I, I don't have it in front of me, but the the two big things basically are that the allegations that Coinbase has been operating as unregistered brokerage, and then there's uh, the implication that the staking program that Coinbase runs uh, constitutes a, a securities offering. On the Binance side of things, it's definitely much more serious. Um, every just everything from commingling of customer accounts, similar to an FTX type situation, to uh, Cheng uh, CZ, the the head of Binance, owning you know sort of there are market makers that are controlled by CZ that trade against customers, all sorts of different types of things. So definitely one is is much more serious than the other, and it's it's sort of reflective of the different strategies that both Coinbase and Binance have taken and. Binance is sort of the the cowboy, and mm-hmm. they are basically don't abide by almost any regulation. And they're, you know, they're the way they've domiciled themselves on a global basis is definitely tricky and a little bit new and probably a bit riskier. It allows them to take more risk in terms of their their product strategy. So there's very little uh, coins or tokens that they don't list, which is very good for volume. They also have an enormous amount of volumes that comes from their their derivatives offerings. Whereas Coinbase has tried to do everything blue chip and buy the book and be based out of the US. The advantage there being, you know, as this regulation has gotten written, I think Coinbase thought that they were going to have a seat at the table. So far, that has proven to not be as good of a strategy. But the silver linings here is that, you know, if we get if we get a, a a good outcome from the perspective of crypto and frankly, you know, investor protections as well, then Coinbase might wind up with a, a relatively minor fine, they end up getting legitimized, where is the whatever ends up happening with Binance is more hobbling. And sort of the the precedent that exists in crypto here is you could look at an exchange called BitMEX. And at one point they were extremely dominant in the in the perps market, which is a type of derivative. They got, I think their their founder Arthur Hayes was actually there were three founders and they actually had criminal charges pressed and it ended up being all right. But the exchange never really recovered in terms of volume. I, I think Arthur Hayes actually uh, has enjoyed a few of uh, my interviews with Felix Zuloff. So nice. Yeah. I can say that's a nice thing about him, you know. <laughs> he writes some great macro posts. I he love does. his stuff. A little long, yeah. but I, I definitely like his stuff. They're great. Yeah. All right, should we move on to why have things been rallying? You know, Mike, you interview people, I interview people, and as you and I know, everyone is always right. You know, people make predictions about <laughs> we're headed for a recession or inflation's coming way down. 
depression. Fed could never raise rates. You know, every prediction is right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, in, you know, in all seriousness, it's a lot easier to diagnose maybe and look back with the benefit of hindsight. Why has the stock market performed so well or performed so badly or inflation has fall, fallen down uh, rather than, you know, reverse engineer it and, and use reasons to, to, to make predictions about a future that is inherently unknowable. So I think a, a question I'd like to explore is, why have we been rallying so hard? I mean, it's not just crypto. The Nasdaq's up, you know, I think over thirty percent this year. S and P up, you know, well over ten percent this year, and uh, things are really on a tear. Uh, and I think it's important to explore why. Um, so I just did an interview with Michael Howell, so I've got a, a yeah. few thoughts I can I can share on that. Yeah, please do. He's great in terms of the liquidity picture, and I got to give him credit. I think he was on forward guidance or maybe forward marginal guidance or at some point back in October, calling for a bull market, and he's yeah. been. At least through today, so we're talking at the end of end of June. He's been largely right about that. Yes, and I especially value that because when people talk about liquidity, it's so often coincident. Like if so, if if we're right now, you know, everything has gone up. People say, "Oh, liquidity is rampant," and if st- things have gone down, they say, "Why have things gone down?" Because there's no liquidity. It's kind of like a self fulfilling prophecy. But <laughs> Michael's track record, uh, you know, over the past two years, which is when I started following him, has, has been exemplary, uh, predicting the, the bear market and predicting the sort of new bull market oh i can't believe i said it uh, or uh you know the, the vigorous rally we've had over the past eight eight or so months okay mm-hmm. so first of all the debt ceiling caused the u.s treasury to not issue treasury bills and that prevented money that would normally not be in the financial system because it had to fund the u.s treasury just could stay in the financial system so that enhanced liquidity second the feds rolling off its balance sheet via quantitative tightening the opposite of quantitative easing that was very slow because mortgage-backed securities prepaid. Uh, it's a little uh, wonky. Or excuse me, they're they're not prepaying, so the the duration of these mortgage-backed securities is extending. So the Fed's balance sheet isn't going down by as much as uh, some had anticipated. Let's see. Another money is coming out of the Fed's reverse repo facility, which is kind of an an inert uh, deposit of money. Where when it once it's in there, it's it's kind of locked up. And then so that's I think those four reasons. The fifth is that bond volatility itself has fallen, and and uh, stock market volatility has fallen. It's just you know a kind of self fulfilling prophecy within markets when when things go up and Kate, you just grind higher. Implied uh, you know realized volatility is lower, so implied volatility in the future is lower, and that gives market participants the ability to take on larger positions. And I'd say the sixth reason, uh, which is probably the biggest reason of all, is that inflation has actually fallen. Mm. Core inflation has been very sticky, but actual inflation has uh, fallen. And actually, there's a chart. Uh, if you can go to slide, what yeah, is sure it? Can. I guess uh, slide, slide four, the five-year CAPE and five-year CPI. Yeah, Markets really like 2% inflation. There's something about 2% inflation that markets love. On the x-axis, we've got the average for the five-year CPI. And it's, it's kind of like an a upward-facing parabola. And on the, the y-axis, we've got uh, the five-year average of CAPE, so sickly adjusted PE ratios for stocks, price to earnings, valuation multiples for stocks. And when inflation is super high, stocks have a low valuation. When inflation is super low or we have deflation, uh, stocks are also poorly valued, probably because we're in a recession or a deep recession, maybe even a, a depression. But there's something about that you know, 1%, 2%, 3% that stocks just love. And that's when you can get price to earnings multiples of uh, 30 and inflation has been falling uh, quite sharply. And so much of the, that has been oil and natural gas, just energy prices d- declining. So, and that you ne- can't necessarily last forever. Uh, plus, there are base effects if you calculate year over year. Um, but it, declining liquidity, excuse me, declining inflation is very good for risk assets and very good for the economy because people say, oh my God, I was getting you know, blasted by this $7 gas. And now it only costs uh, three dollars, three dollars fifty cents, and so they'll they'll spend more, uh, even if a year ago it actually still cost three dollars fifty cents. It's a you know it's a, it's a rate of change type thing. Uh, so that I think I threw out you know like six reasons why. So at least a, a few of them I think should reasonably be be accurate to cover why the economy has been resilient and risk assets have done well. And that, that's another thing: the economy has been resilient. Like re- recession calls that you know I've uh, been witnessing and you know been pre- present to for over the past year, it hasn't happened. Uh, you could make the case two two things. Number one, 
the recession is just going to be moved out. So now it could be into 2024 uh, recession, which is crazy because people were talking about 2022. Joseph Wang, of course, the Fed guy, he said recession in 2024, and he's never thought about a recession. So he, even Joseph is getting a little a little worried now. And the, mm. that's the sort of uh, bear case. The second case is the optimistic case is that the recession already happened last year in 2022 and that blue skies ahead. That's kind of Michael Howell's view. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. You've been in crypto for a while. You know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the ones that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, app change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods 20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. Yeah, I have I have a lot of questions there. So one, one thing that I'd be curious to sort of get your take on is I've I've sort of had this in this 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 came up as well in my in my uh, recording this week with George Goncalves, who is the uh, head of macro strategy at MUFG. So I heard that. one ex one explanation, right? There's the liquidity, and we we know at this point, right, that liquidity sort of drives all. So I basically listen to everything that I can get my hands on that that Michael produces and records. I know your episode just dropped this morning, so I haven't had the chance to to listen to it yet. But I'm a big believer in that framework for looking at, especially short to midterm price action, the sort of liquidity picture. The other, you know, we, we also know, Jack, that monetary policy acts in long and variable lags. And the time frame that I'd always heard was about 18 months, right? And that, you know, we started hiking back in March of 2022. It's been about 15 months. And people are sort of sitting here scratching their head and wondering, well, where is this recession that was supposed to happen? We know, right, that it takes some period of time, but why hasn't it come yet? And, you know, this sort of Occam's razor, simplest explanation that at least I can think of is last year was, I think, the worst year, you know, Jim Bianco has these charts since mm -hmm. you know, the 1800s or something like that in terms of the 60-40 portfolio. Weren't we always going to get some amount of mean reversion, right? Like, weren't we always going to catch a little bit of a, a bounce off of the bottom there? Now, what's going on from here? I I feel like we are still due. I, I'm in the Jack Farley camp that I, I don't think there's any such thing as a free lunch, right? When you withdraw liquidity and the M2 money supply and the Fed basically tells everyone that they want a recession, I think we're probably going to get a recession. Maybe it just hasn't happened as fast as as fast as we all might think. What would you say to that analysis? I mean, if you're in the Jack Farley camp, how can I disagree with you? Uh, <laughs> I think you're right. And here's where I think Michael's description, uh, diagnosis of why the market has rallied, why there has been liquidity is very apt and accurate. Yeah. And but it's, but it's been mechanical. It's been all of these facilities that are way over my head and super complicated and, you know, way over the head of, of many people who, uh, you know, whose job it is to, to, to understand this stuff, frankly, it's just so complicated. It, it's, it's just the way it happened. I, I don't think that the Federal Reserve is intentionally targeting a certain level of uh, they said, they, you know, they oh oh yeah, we'll tell the public we're doing quantitative tightening, but actually we're doing shadow quantitative easing. Michael mm -hmm. kind of thinks they that they are Michael Howell, and he thinks that they're targeting a certain level of bank reserves, uh, just over three trillion dollars. That the level of bank reserves in the U.S. actually did below it during the U.K. guilt crisis, and that since then the Fed has had its hand on the till, and I'm, I'm sure they've been observing it and 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 tracking it. But these facilities that the Fed has set up, like the reverse repo facility, uh. Or, or the discount window, which you know was used a lot, and the new BTFP program used a lot in March, April, and June, May of uh, of this year for Silicon Valley. It's they, they it's up to the banks to take up how much lending they want. You know, if JP Morgan wanted to borrow a hundred billion dollars tomorrow via the discount window, it could. It just wouldn't make sense because it's they they have an excess of cash, and their cash is their cost of funding is you know close to zero, and that that discount window funding would cost five percent. So, you know, when, pe when, when people t put money in or out of the reverse repo facility, it's not, I don't think it's really the Federal Reserve, quote, doing it. It's just the, Fed, the Fed is just there. And the, the debt ceiling, falling bond volatility, 
Uh, so many factors I think the Fed ultimately has no control over, maybe with the exception of bond volatility because it, it con does control rates. But um, I think that for liquidity to continue to increase, the Federal Reserve will have to do ov something overt. It will have to uh, say, oh, we're actually going to stop quantitative tightening or actually we're going to start resuming quantitative easing. I'm with Daniel DiMartino Booth that that is just not on the table anytime soon um, unless things get really, really, really bad. And I also think this is related to the topic of is the Fed done hiking? I think Jay Powell made it quite clear that the answer is no. And uh, now the market is pricing in for the Fed meeting in July, close to an 80% chance that they do hike. So the upper range will be 5.5%. The Bank of England today just raised interest rates by uh, 50 basis points, 0.5%. And the market is pricing that uh, like sterling overnight rates get to above 6%, uh, I think I think by the end of the year. So mm. higher for longer. And uh yeah, I, I don't think that is good for good for risk assets, and I think liquidity probably will decline. Now, you had the world's foremost liquidity expert disagrees with me, so it's like, who are you going to believe, me or the expert? <laughs> um, but that's just the way I'm thinking about it. You know what? I think I was just looking here at at my bookshelf, and there's this there's this book called The Three Body Problem that I really mm -hmm. love, and what it reminds me of, Jack, is the the idea behind the three body problems is actually a sort of a um, a spatial physics problem that was described a little while ago by some famous mathematician where, you know, if you have two bodies of, of with a known mass and sort of gravitational pull, you can understand based on a given period of time, based on how much they weigh and their acceleration, et cetera, where those two bodies are going to be relative to each other after a period of time. If you introduce a third body, you would think if you know all of the factors, again, of how much they weigh and the acceleration, et cetera, et cetera, you should be able to, after those three bodies interact with each other over a period of time, know exactly where they all are relative to each other. Turns out you cannot do that. It's actually very, very difficult. And when I think about liquidity, there are three things that I think about. There's the reverse repo facility, there's the Fed balance sheet, and then there's the TGA. And somehow these things together, I feel like you should just be able to tell what the liquidity picture is going to be. These are known relationships relative to one another. And yet for some reason to me, they produce this weird third body problem sort of outcome when it comes to liquidity, where it's just very difficult to measure at any given point what liquidity is going to do. And maybe ultimately liquidity is sort of what it needs to be based on political needs. Um, and I, I had a, I know you, I've told you this before. My favorite episode that you've done of all the great episodes that you've recorded over the last six months was the interview with uh, Sir Paul Tucker. Oh. And Sir Paul Tucker also went on a Grant Williams show, which I highly recommend people people listen to. But he sort of described this political brin brinksmanship that sometimes happens in between monetary policymakers and fiscal policymakers, where let's say there's some sort of big event, like a COVID-style event that happens in um, – and monetary, monetary and fiscal policymakers meet. And they say, hey, we've got to do something about this. It will be better if we work in tandem as opposed to working separately. Okay, everyone meets in a room. They say, hey, I'm going to do this. Maybe I'm going to cut rates. And you know, the government, the fiscal policy side of the aisle, they say, I'm going to spend money. We're going to deficit, increase deficit spending for a little bit. Okay. Then everyone leaves the room. Then there's a little bit of a game theory that goes on where you, know, you as the, the monetary policymaker, you're like, I want to hold up my end of the bargain here. Your political advisors tell you you should not do that. You you absolutely shouldn't. Uh, you know you X Y Z risks. You're not taking into account X Y Z. And you say, okay, well, well, what if I didn't fulfill my side of the argument? What what would end up happening? The other guy who is also in this agreement would have to do more, right? Mm. Because if you don't fulfill your side of the bargain, then fiscal or monetary is going to have to do much more to get to the same result, and you're going to be totally fine. And I feel like that's a pretty good lens to look at. Like you and I get on here and we talk about the Fed very often, right? What's fiscal doing? You know, yeah. What is fiscal doing? Because we're talking about Jerome Powell channeling his inner Volcker, getting up there, raising rates to, by the way, a historically normal range for interest rates. And fiscal is still running $2 trillion a year deficits. So that I feel like is an underdiscussed is an underdiscussed part of what's going on because that also I think contributes to liquidity is how much the government wants to spend. Completely agree with you. I think fiscal matters so much. When the government borrows money, it's a government deficit, and a government deficit is the private surplus. Whatever the government, you know, is is debt. That's what the private sector is is getting, kind of uh, mm. 
for free. And I'm putting that in quotes. <laughs> uh, ultimately, I would think that demand the, the if the U.S. government borrows so much money, the supply would cause interest rates to rise, bond yields to rise, because it would have uh, demand. I think that's the model for every single country that's not doesn't have the global reserve currency, which the the um, U.S. dollar does have, and then the Federal Reserve step can step in to buy that debt as well. Uh, you know, I think China—it's not that they haven't been dumping treasuries, but their uh, treasury holdings have been somewhat declining. I, I think over the past ten years, and that happened while the Fed was doing a huge amount of quantitative easing. So, you know, I think if the Federal Reserve does not come to the rescue and buy these treasuries, and the economy is still very strong, so growth and inflation are still high, and particularly inflation is high, I, I can see bond yields uh, rising more, and that would increase the uh, fiscal expense. Now, I, the, the demand for treasuries is just so so massive that, there, of course, there, there will be a bid, and it could be even lower. I mean, people who predict, who've been predicting you know, high treasury yields since 2008 great financial crisis, the prediction has not worked at all up until like about a year ago. Um, but yeah, fiscal has been huge, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, speaking of, um, maybe less on the fiscal side, but more of drum drums had a couple of, uh, our chair Powell, I should say, has had a couple of Senate <laughs> meetings uh, this week. First time basis. Yeah. Sorry. That was very, very familiar. I apologize no. to your Powell if you're, if you're listening here, but I, uh, I, I know you, I know you actually tuned into some of those. So I'd love to sort of get your, your high level take on what those hearings have, have yielded. I mean, he's made it pretty clear at least one more hike and prop maybe slash probably two. Uh, he's talked a lot about forthcoming bank regulations that are going to be coming, but the proposal is there's not even a final draft of the proposal yet that would uh, maybe increase capital requirements for, for large banks. And, you know, a lot of Congress people are asking, what about the small banks? He says, don't worry about it, but they still are worried about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny. I think the last time he was in Congress was a day or two before, I think literally one day before Silicon Valley Bank failed. So the timing is, is strange. Yeah, no, not exactly great. I mean, I think that's that's what we've uh, that's what we've been talking about here. I mean, he the the Fed wants to be data dependent. I think the pause was actually a pretty savvy tactical move to give themselves a little bit more time. It seems like the although core PCE has been particularly sticky and has not trended down the amount that they've wanted. They've given themselves a couple of months of reprieve to hope that it continues to trend down, and then they can be data dependent and, you know, and and not risk breaking the system with uh, more aggressive hikes. So, yeah, I think about one more hike sounds sounds right. Yeah, I mean, I have been doing some work on the banks, and if you look at the number of banks, I think the majority of banks in the United States are not having a good time with high interest rates, to put it, put it lightly. And you know, if the Fed raises from 0% to 3%, and they do so over five years, let's say, at the beginning when the Fed funds rates at 0%, the banks are paying 0% for their deposits. And then they raise 25 basis points. They can keep their rates at zero. Then they 25. No one cares. No one's, you know, who is Jay Powell? They're focusing on stuff. But when the Fed raises by 500 basis points in a year, then people are saying, hey, why is this bank still paying me 0%? So that's why all these you know, regional banks are paying 3% uh, for their deposits, their total cost of funds, their spot cost of deposits could be even higher in, in some cases. And they made loans at 4%. And so their net interest margins are very, very narrow. And that's just their gross profit. And then there's like, they've got to pay, you know, for their people, they've got to pay for all the costs, also, you know, insurance, all sorts of things. So uh, if the banks, I think, were not publicly traded. They could just handle a little, a few quarters of losses, and it would be fine. But I think you have this phenomenon where the bank is going to lose money, uh, even with credit, even with credit loans not going bad. But it's it's you know net interest margin. It's just the math doesn't really work. And then so the stock sells off, and then depositors think that there's you know they smell they uh, smell smoke, so they think there's fire, and then they leave, and then the stock falls further, and you get this kind of. Uh, doom cycle. I actually think that the large banks are in a quite strong position. I haven't looked into this new uh, capital rule, and I think that banks are selling off today on the Thursday of June 22nd, perhaps on, on fears of this, uh, although you never know the reason why anything moves. 
but they they are in a quite strong place and they could lend much more if they if they wanted to. And I I also I don't want to say no, but I have a strong inclination that uh, regional banks are pulling back lending quite strongly. And I don't know whether large banks will be there to fill in the gap. In the, during the great financial crisis, large banks withdrew lending so much, and regional banks uh, actually I think lent more and they tried to fill in the gap, but they they couldn't, and that's why lending really contracted and that lasted for a, a long time. Um, but yeah, re- regional banks. Are, are pulling back. And I, I did an interview with Randy Woodward and John Tuhig. John Tuhig tra- trades loans. And he said, it's just really tough. Talk about liquidity. Liquidity in the loan market is not there. Liquidity in the housing market is not there. If you want to buy or sell a house, liquidity. So that's one thing I talked about with Michael. He's only tracking financial market liquidity, not liquidity of other things. And there are things such as loans and housing, particularly commercial real estate loans, where there's no bid. And you know the phones are, are silent. You can just plug, you know, Plug them out because there, yeah. there's no need to have a phone. It, it's a super good point, Jack. We we I think when we did our debrief of the last FOMC with with Joseph, he we we talked specifically about the question that Chair Powell got asked about stress in the banking system through uh, commercial real estate debt. I I want to direct your attention as well because we've talked about that quite a bit on this program. I want to talk about stress that's popping up actually in private markets as well. So there was a very interesting exclusive that PitchBook ran that sort of went under the under the radar, which was Tiger Global has opens full portfolio to individual bids in search of liquidity. So this is this is a little bit unique. Tiger obviously is a, a very well known hedge fund run by Chase Coleman, one of the Tiger Cubs. They made a name for themselves for, for many years. Uh, they've got a public and a private market side of things, but really during this last sort of bull market mania, they really went big into specifically late stage private markets. Uh, they're very active in in crypto, which is frankly where I'm most familiar with them. But there were all these stories about you know XYZ company raising 150 million dollars at X valuation, and they would come in and take down the whole round and double the valuation, and and many such stories like this, and and. And and then once everything rolled over, you know they did a little bit of a, a cap raise. It wasn't as much as they ultimately would have liked, and now they're doing something that I think is pretty unique, actually, in just opening up their books and offering anything for sale, right? Including the the prize hogs, so to speak. So this this to me signals uh, quite a bit of stress, um, and I think it is, you know, this could be unique to Tiger because, to be honest. They were taking probably more risk than, in retrospect, it was it was wise to. They're do. also super uh, heavily invested in China, and those stocks have suffered a lot. Yeah, correct, exactly. So they were operating in a very risky risky space, and what they what they were trying to do is sort of create an index of sorts. If you wanted exposure to these specific sectors of the market, they wanted to just be broad exposure for institutional investors. So I I saw where they were they're sort of going with it, but now it's it's rolled over and is kind of going against them. The the question that I think bears asking is, is this the tale of a a large uh, hedge fund with a very healthy risk appetite, or is it the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, for private sector assets such as uh, private equity or late stage venture? Because I would imagine they're not alone in in feeling some of this pain. Yeah. So Chase Coleman, a hedge fund manager, so that expertise and the expertise of that team, I presume. Something akin to, I'm going to go, you know, long J.P. Morgan, short Bank of America before earnings. Something that it's a pretty narrow skill set of long and short, and you got you know a team that does options. Maybe you you trade oh currencies, macro stuff like that. But you really, and this is key in investing, you don't want to go out of your lane. You know, like Charlie uh, Munger and, and Warren Buffett. When they, they read an annual report about, oh, do I want to invest in this company or no? Let me learn a little bit about it. They said within 30 seconds, they can just say, oh, this is too hard. Oh, this this company, it's it's in Brazil. What what, what does this business do? Like, I, I don't really understand it. You got to really understand the business. And I, I'm sure that they are very good at uh, you know going long, short and uh, other styles of investing. But they ventured, uh, you know, pun intended, into places where they did not have expertise. Maybe they didn't have the deal flow. Like, yeah, you're, you're going to beat... Uh, retail, your your the your well compensated uh, portfolio managers are going to beat the retail investors that they're competing against in the publicly traded long short type arena, but they may not beat you know 
uh, Chamath Palihapitiya and all the venture capitalists in, in Silicon Valley who know everyone and are in the thing. And so, I, I mean, I just heard and read stories, and I don't have any inside knowledge, just about Tiger Global trying to force their way into deals in the same way that, you know, a tourist in an island town will try and get into a club by just like, I'll, I have all this money, like clear bouncer, take my money. It's like, you're, you're not, you're not the smart money. You know, you're, 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 uh, you're not, this is, this is not your home, you know? And I think they invested in a lot of venture and they capital deals that now it's very hard to get out of. And venture, venture capitalists who have a exemplary track record are in the exact same position. Liquidity in the venture capital market. So I read has been quite poor over their, you know, the past six months. It could be better now that uh, uh, the stock market's doing well. You had an IPO of uh, Kava, the, the food uh, thing that like doubled in the first day. And you know, deal-making activity in VC is somewhat correlated to IPOs because if IPO market is hot and the SPAC market's hot, then they can uh, you know, sell their positions to the public markets. And if it's frozen, then they you know, are, are not going to be investing in, in early-stage companies. But... Even though those venture capitalists who have the expertise, they're in the same position. It's but they they know what they're doing, and they have a, a, a experience. Whereas Tiger Global, they just made the asset allocation decision, no alpha of we need to invest in venture capital because that thing has done really well. And you said an index. I think indexation is great. The S P five hundred. I'm not going to be trading in and out of individual stocks and getting chopped chopped to bits. And uh, you know, I, I think ind- passive investing indexation is great, but. You should be trying to generate alpha if you're in the venture capital market, and you, by by doing all the hot deals and chasing, oh my God, this company raised at 80 billion, I'll offer them 90 billion. Don't worry about it. I think that's just kind of a, a recipe for trouble, and uh, perhaps that's what you're seeing. Yeah, you bring up really good points, Jack. I do want to just give one caveat here, which is I'm pretty sure the public and private market investing at Tiger was actually divided in between. Chase was more of the Chase Coleman, the the founder, is what the more of the public markets mm. guy, and then there's a a guy that leads their private investments. His name is Scott um, Scott Schliefer. So I just, just thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just just a flag, just a flag there. But but the the point stands, right? It certainly they were doing things that. You know, should they have been doing that? There's there's a reason, by the way. There's, you know, Matt, Matt Levine has a great column of like, people are worried about bond market liquidity. The reason being, there are these ETFs that, you know, sort of are these indexes of a whole bunch of different types of bonds. People have for, for a long time made the made the argument that each bond is is different, right? It's it's Every single one is underwriting a different bit of risk, a different period of time, at a different rate. And you can't necessarily, you're, you're get, presenting a wrapper that gives the illusion of liquidity without... Mm-hmm real liquidity in the underlying asset. And there's probably a little bit of that going on as well here. And maybe the the high level idea seems very enticing of an index where you can just get broad exposure to late stage private markets. But the truth is, despite them being relatively advanced, there's these are still risky startup companies. And maybe the idea of an index is fundamentally at, at odds with the the state of of private market companies. It just can't necessarily be done super easily. But the you know the last component to this is there there this might have been a tale of um I, I want to not talk about any specific firm here, but but definitely people got way over their skis in one of the frothiest bits of the market, which was late stage private. Another stress that you're also starting to see at another sort of storied private investor is Sequoia. So Sequoia's they, there were a couple of things that I thought were pretty interesting. There was their heritage vehicle, which allowed investors to carry over from private markets, which to your point, Jack, is really where Sequoia specialized and built many you know, generational businesses. And they sort of ventured into the more public side of things, which was maybe a sign that they were getting into unfamiliar territory or ground that they weren't as familiar with. And now they've obviously broken up and there's going to be three different funds. There's going to be Sequoia based out of the US and then there's going to be a China and an India fund as well. So sort of cracks forming across even some of the most blue chip private investors out there, I think. Yeah, and the message is just stay in your lane. You can't be an expert in everything. You can't have alpha in anything. It's in everything. It's hard to have alpha in, in a tiny niche of the market. But if you try and have alpha in everything and get in every deal and do all sorts of trade every asset class, all sorts of strategies, you're likely going to be mediocre in, in all of them, uh, if not uh, bad. Yeah. What? So you're saying just keep a healthy dose of humility, Jack? Stay in your lane? Come on. What is it? Give us some some actionable advice. Well, well if if 
you have an edge. And if you're actually doing your homework and you know, you're many hours a day, you're pouring through the, uh, the filings, you're looking at doing all this research, you're doing back tests, you're doing all sorts of stuff. And you're, you think you're doing it, you know, better, more efficiently, better research than the other professionals. And you think you have an edge, then go for, go for gold. I mean, there, you know, folks out sitting outside this room on the Blockworks crypto research team who, yeah, I, I think they do have a, a, a chance of beating the market when it comes to crypto. But like I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to get involved in any sort of very niche, you know, uh, micro cap coin that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to get my face ripped off, you know, I, so I'm yeah. going to stick to my knitting. Crypto is not my expertise, you know? Yeah. I would completely agree there, Jack. All right, last story that I want to end on here with you is I want to actually take us across the pond here to our, our fellow fellow citizens in the in the United Kingdom, where inflation has been an absolute beast of a problem. I've got some some charts here to to view. So to be totally clear, you know, no matter where you sort of fall on the inflation is transitory sort of side of things, it, obviously it's still a problem over in the U.S., but it's far worse in in the U.K. and what we're seeing here, I've got a, a chart here of CPI inflation in the UK, the euro area, and the US. And you can see in the US, it's obviously the lowest. The euro area is higher, but UK, we're still you know, printing you know, eight, eight some odd percent right, of, of inflation. And that is a very large problem. So the yields of gilts have responded commensurately. And if you remember back, I believe it was November of 21. Was it that there was that um, there was that strain in the gilt market, and we saw, uh, you know, we had our our mini mini budget plan, which saw um, the prime minister end up getting kicked out in one of the shortest shortest reigns ever, and now it looks like yields uh, are are spiking right back up. This is the two year uh, government bond yield, and it is it is really ripping because traders are betting that the the Bank of England is going to hike rates to six percent this year. So. You know, what do you make of all this, Jack? This is uh, some turmoil, to say the least. Well, on just the point about humility, there are very smart people, investors, you know, people have been trading bonds for, for decades who said in Europe, interest rates will remain at zero for the rest of our lifetime. And they drew a trend line and said, if anything, yields have to become even more negative in Europe. I mean, now looks like uh, interest rates in the United Kingdom will be at 6%, not 1%, 2%, but 6%. So it just goes to say, you know, even if you do, if you are smart and haven't done your homework, you, you can always be wrong and you can even be disastrously wrong, uh, as, as many were in, in this case. Uh, what was I going to say? So I, I don't really track the UK economy with a great amount of specifics, but I'll just say that chart, which you flashed up of the year, that's year over year, I believe, uh, headline inflation. So it includes the fact that the price of oil and natural gas has plummeted. First, it skyrocketed and then it plummeted. It plummeted from very, very high levels to only, quote, high levels. Uh, but I just looked up the month-over-month -month core inflation rate, and in January, it was 1.2% month-over-month. February, 0.9%, 1.3%, 0 0.8%. Actually, I'm sorry, that was starting in February. So uh, excluding January, I mean, it's core inflation is running at an annualized rate month-over-month -month of more like 9, 10, 11%. Uh, you know, I'm not, not calculating exactly, but that fall in uh, that you know, people who are watching the video saw is due to the year-over-year -year effects that you know the May CPI reading in the UK for 2023 is comparing it to May 2022 when the price of oil was like $130 or $120. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is base effects, the year-over-year -year effect, and then the falling price of energy. So yeah, inflation in the UK is problem is a is a big problem. I don't follow closely enough to to know that the real source. I mean, you know, maybe maybe money printing had something to do with it, but uh, we we did a lot in the US as well. Maybe more. I don't know. And uh, inflation is a scourge, but uh, has fallen somewhat, whereas in the UK, it's, it's vicious. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. 
Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah, I am in complete agreement with you there. And I think two things that just might be worth calling out is that despite this talk of the U.S. losing its prominence on a global stage, et cetera, et cetera, people, other countries still look to the United States in terms of policy. And that is especially prevalent, I would say, for the central banking community. And you know, I am a believer in this idea that everything trades off of the tenure, the, the U.S. tenure. And what we're doing over here in the U.S., we, you know, we are sort of one of the the few central banks, I would say, that can claim to be truly sovereign and in control of our own destiny. A lot of the other central banks have a little bit less wiggle room, uh, including even very large ones like the ECB and the Bank of England. So, what I would just point out is that, you know, the U.S. is sort of balancing. Okay, there's sort of price stability versus risks of a recession, and even those two things are very difficult to to keep in mind over here. But the European central banks have the additional challenge of, you know, placing their own policy within the context of what the United States Federal Reserve is doing. So that's one additional layer of of uh, of challenge for them. The other thing to point out is that, you know, part of the reason people have really been stumped over here in the United States about housing. So we've had mortgage rates, you know, scream up from sub 3% to 1.7%. And there were all these charts, right? You probably saw this is what the average American could afford, you know, at a three percent mortgage rate, and this is what they could afford at uh, a seven percent annual mortgage, you know, mortgage rate, and that implies something like a forty percent dip in terms of housing. And we haven't even got close to that. It actually looks like the, you know, smarter people than me, it looked like the bottom is forming in, in housing. The the thing to note is that the vast majority of mortgages over in the United States are a fixed rate. In the UK. It is. It is not so. It's. It's much more common for the first five or some five five years or so to be fixed rate, and then you either need to refinance it or it just pops right over to a a variable rate mortgage. So the impact could actually be much larger for the average person of rates and mortgages going up in the UK than it is in the United States. Yeah, I mean, this is the ultimate example of not on my bingo card. I I thought, yeah, high mortgage rates must slow the housing market down, and they did slow. Uh, you know, origination activities because fewer people wanted to take out a, a mortgage or definitely refinance because why would you refinance a 3% loan to to borrow at 7%? Right. But uh, home building stocks are on a tear. That's a, another point Michael Howell made out. You have to talk, you have to respect the internals of the stock market. The, the two best performing sectors, uh, or I guess subsectors, industries in this are semiconductors and uh, home builders. Very cyclical stocks indicating that we are emerging from a slowdown and that growth, you know, growth is is going to be robust. And I typically am not, I'm not a guy who says like the bond market is telling me this or the stock market is telling me that. But if you are one of those people, the stock market, you got to respect it. That's what the stock market is telling you. And yeah, uh, I think, I think home prices are, are going up. And if you look at like the sales price of new homes, that's where a lot of the activity is because people don't want to leave their homes because they have all these, they want to sit you know, in their house, just looking at their 3% mortgage and feeling good. So they don't want to relocate. So the stock of existing homes has fallen. So new new homes uh, have to fill in the gap. And that's why those home building stocks are, are doing so well. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a really surprising. And this is another thing about recession. It's like, if you, if you think that we're in a recession now, but you say, oh, an asterisk, oh yeah, home building is strong, but that's be only because of this reason. Oh yeah, well, the labor market, oh, but that's because of this reason. Because the BLS is doing something. It's like, you know, you really want to have a recession call with 12 asterisks. Like that's pretty close to not having a recession, you know? By the way, I yeah. still think that we you know, could have a recession in 2024 and probably more likely than not. But I'm just saying, you know, you when the facts change, you have to change your mind. And obviously I don't know what's coming in the future, but in September, October, recession was a mainstream call by economists who covered the US. I think the Bloom, like Bloomberg literally has a tracker of the percentage of a recession. And it was at 99%. Okay. And so here we are, uh, I don't know, nine, 10 months later, the economic data has been much, much better than th those forecasts. And I think that's something you, just, you, know, you have to acknowledge. Obviously, anything can come in the future, and I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic, but I, I just think, you know, for the sake of intellectual honesty, you, you can't just, you know, double down and never admit that you were wrong, you know, so... I totally hear you on that, Jack. Just kind of a high-level question for you. They're, like, ignoring all the economic data that that you and I parse out pretty regularly, does it feel like a recession to you right now? 
I'd, I'd say no. I'd say no. And I think I it's not good to extrapolate from your lived experience, especially if you have a narrow experience such as myself where you, you spend a lot of time in a city and you really, you know, if you're a salesperson, you're, okay, I'm in Florida. Now I'm in Mississippi. Now I'm in Alaska. You really do get to pound the pavement and see what the American economy is like, but I don't have that experience. So I, I would rely on more of a data-driven view than my own sort of feeling. But uh, yeah, I would, I would say no. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a little tough in, in this particular moment in time. It, you obviously extrapolate your own experience to some degree. I, George Gunkalves this, this, this week in our interview actually gave a, a pretty good overview of it for me, which is that there's a bit of a white collar recession that's oh, yeah. going on. And you are starting to see, I mean, frankly, this, these were headlines six or so months ago. It was every big company from Google to Facebook to Salesforce was cutting heads left, right, and center. You know, that was after having done an enormous amount of hiring. I haven't gone back and checked, but I would guess their their headcount is still well above where it was in 2019 before we were going into COVID. But, you know, you sort of started to see that now. There were a couple banking headlines and and things like that. So what what it seems like is happening because some of these bigger sectors, right, like housing and home builders, those have not been nearly as strained as you and I might have thought. You know, those are industries that employ a lot of people, whereas, frankly, a lot of the knowledge worker, more white collar side of things that, you know, have less people, they're very richly paid, right? Often, um, maybe there's more of a recession in in that part of the in that part of the country. And that's why that maybe that's another reason why it's not appearing as much in terms of the overall unemployment number as well. So I, th- I think that's objectively true that. Uh, a majority of the the layoffs as a percentage, not number, but a percentage, uh, have been concentrated in technology and finance, typically uh, higher paying jobs, typically a fewer number of jobs. I was surprised to learn, I think technology, information technology uh, uh, hirings are only 4% of American jobs. So that is not, you know, the average American worker is not a technology employee at all. That is, that is not accurate. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I think, um, Government has been strong, so it's not a huge bull case when like the biggest employer growth in employment has been the government. But uh, uh, home building, manufacturing, you know, many industries have been strong that employ far more people, service workers, and I think home building that might that has been robust. It, it may stop a little bit, particularly on the multifamily side. But again, it takes so long for this to work through the system. I mean, like I did an, an interview with uh, Dan McNamara, a inv- credit investor who's very bearish on commercial real estate. He's basically like the big short, but for commercial real estate and office. So he's mm. short all these uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities. And you, if you listen to that interview, you can get pretty scared and it sounds like a disaster. And you know, he, he think it is, but it's a really slow moving train. If it's a train wreck, it's a slow moving train wreck. And you know, it could take one to two years for all this stuff to go through the pipeline. So folks getting all bared up, you know, nine months ago, they're a little too early. And, you know, in the investment game, being early is the same thing as, as being wrong. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you there, Jack. It's, the, the truth is it's, it's, it often is a little bit more nuanced than we all like to, you know, it doesn't make for as good of media, right? It makes for better media to just stand up and say, this is absolutely happening. But oftentimes it takes a little bit longer and it's a little bit more nuanced in terms of, you know, we're dealing with a very large, very complicated system in the form of the economy. Very difficult yeah, to yeah, predict these and, things. And I feel like, Companies doing dumb deals. That was something in 2021 and 2022. I'll give you an example. Like, you know, Netflix paying a gazillion dollars to uh, Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of, of Sussex, to do like a t- 12 episodes of a podcast or something. Like, the, the, they're cutting back. You know, those are the first things that get cut is like the, the you know, the, the dumb sort of, uh, Exposures. I don't. Know. I just. I just saw that in the, the headline, and I was thinking. Uh, I observe, as a podcaster myself, you know, I, I couldn't help but observe that. Like twelve episodes. Yeah. You're not a podcaster. You do twelve episodes. Yeah, I. I'm in complete agreement with you there, yeah. Jack. So, and that that those sorts of decisions, maybe we'll call it questionable ROI to say the least. I mean, you could do that across every spectrum of management and field of business or whatever over the course of the last, you know, however many ten years. I, th- I think one of the one of the realities that's so if you trace it back to sort of this misalignment in between fiscal and monetary 
then you say, well, monetary has been overactive because fiscal hasn't done necessarily enough or they're not spending on the right type of thing. God knows they're spending a lot of money. Then one of the, what the, the decision has basically been to blow a bubble in assets. That has led to a bunch of capital misallocation that has not rewarded good risk management. And oh, that is a, you're so right. It, yeah, yeah, it, oh, yeah. It just hasn't rewarded risk management. If you are a more cautious type of person, you know, chances are over the last 10 years, you've been, you know, I think that sometimes unfairly gets construed as wanting to see the world burn. I think the more charitable way of describing it is people inherently want there to be consequences for actions. And yeah. really in the last 10 years, there haven't been. And I'll give a perfect example of Uber. I'm a little biased as having uh, you know, recently read this book. I think it was called Super Pumped, which had a somewhat negative view. Mm. But as a company, you know, you should be profitable. You should earn. You should make enough money to pay your employees uh, in excess at the, at the bare minimum. Unless you're starting, you know, if you're starting, or if you have a bad quarter, everyone has a bad year. It's cyclical stuff like that. But I mean, a company like Uber is, that was structurally imp- unprofitable, and that you know, more, over a decade since its founding, it has. I don't think it ever turned a net income profit. EBITDA, of course, oh everything. But in terms of real non-fake numbers, it, I don't think it's it's ever made money. And I mean, that was just juiced to the gills by venture capital money. And it's saying, oh my god, if you can grow at fifty percent, that's perfect. We'll give you all the money. You can you can burn as as much money. And it's just they've burned so much investor money. And I think even more bad consequence. You know, investors can burn their money. Whatever, it's fine. But it, it has negative consequences against. Uh, you know, taxi companies that actually had to pay for costs that weren't internalized because Uber, you know, had this $60 billion uh, uh, war chest. And, you know, I mean, Silicon Valley, like, there's so many great technologies that have come out of uh, Silicon Valley, but I'm just like, where where are the great IPOs of the past five years, you know? Uh, Whether, I mean, let alone have they done something good for society, but I'm just talking about investor returns. I mean, their product, you know, I mean, there's seen in Mad Men, when uh, a guy was like, I, I don't like their product. And uh, yeah, just like, uh, you know, I, you got to be putting out some better products, um, I feel like. One of the challenges that I would that I would say comes from technology is, you know, ideally, if I was a government and I was trying to think about what is the best outcome for the majority of people, you would sort of want outcomes where the returns have a relatively even distribution, not perfectly even, right? The people that take risk and manage others and harness social capital and, and real capital, you know, and to generate returns, you'd want some outsized returns to accrue there. But generally, you wouldn't want it so that, uh, you know, to use hyperbole, a, a, a company that was spun up and managed by one person could accrue a trillion dollars worth of value, right? You wouldn't think that would be because so many people would not be served by that by that outcome. One of the challenges of technology is it does have this winner take all dynamic that you know value can be created but it doesn't it accrues so unevenly like if you look at mm-hmm. you know to to the the counterpoint to to what you just mentioned would be if you look at the S&P 500 the the largest companies they're like all tech companies now and and the, the, you know if you look at the you know for every Uber that exists there's a Facebook that was now that thing just spits off cash. Same thing yeah. with Apple. Same thing with a lot of these companies that are unprofitable for a period of time. I think the thing that is more challenging, and this is only going to get worse in the era of crypto and AI, is these aren't job creators, Jack. M- many of these, many of these, and I, you know, I read the Mark Andreessen thing. I get it. I don't want to be a Luddite. You know, I know that these technologies tend to create new jobs. I don't actually know. 20 years into the internet, I would actually argue that that's not true. I do not think that the the internet has created more jobs than it has probably destroyed. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing, but we have to have an answer for it as a society. Otherwise, you're going to get a bunch of unemployed, disenfranchised people that are not happy. And that's not a good outcome either. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. All right, partner. I think that's all the time we have on that positive note. Jack, yeah. I think yeah. we, can, wow. we, can, we can leave it. Um, actually, you know, just to say one, one, one thing that is exciting. You know, you often, I think the general, if I had to put my finger on the general sentiment and mood of, of people out there, not, not as happy as people have been in the past, I would say. I don't think I'm reaching too far to say that. I do think it's, there is a, there is a lot of opportunity, especially if you're a young person, a young, you know, in the workforce, like there is so much cool stuff going on and, 
I don't know. I, despite sometimes I feel like the stuff that talk about on the show is skewed a little bit negative. I think there's so much to be optimistic and positive about at the same time. So I want to leave it. We agree. I also say, you know, I'm joking that I said I rebranded myself as an AI expert. I mean, there's so many people on Twitter who are just like, I'm an AI expert. Here's 10 things that you need to do to, so you don't get, and it's, I feel like the narrative has gotten ahead of itself, but I feel like in investing, it actually hasn't. Like you aren't seeing deals being, you you haven't seen an AI SPAC deal. You've actually seen an announced one. So I think it's, the AI is moving past its early stages and it's moving into its middle phase. So I still think there are a few more innings left in that AI thing. And that's not, I'm not even saying, uh, that is a market call. It is not a view of the fundamentals on whether it can improve all this you know, and, and make things more efficient. I just, yeah, it could have some legs. It'll have legs. I, yeah. I, I actually, you know, Jason, my you know other co-founder, mm-hmm. he is a very early adopter of technology, always on like the newest thing has to get the newest. I'm the opposite of that. I I'm would be fine running a five-year-old. I've, I don't, I don't need any of this, this stuff. I'm a very, I'm a laggard on that, you know, adoption scale that everyone's seen. I use uh chat GBT quite a bit. I actually use it in favor of Google oftentimes. If I'm, other than like just, hey, what, what showtime is this or where is this thing that I'll still Google? But if I'm like, how does this work? I will go to ChatGPT first now. And yeah, that's one small piece of data, like in a slight anecdote, there are factual problems with it, but it produces more useful results for me than, than Google often. And now sometimes when I Google stuff, I'm like, it's just SEO BS. Yeah, this isn't even useful. And I don't feel like that with AI. Yes, so I don't use ChatGPT, so I'm I really am unqualified to talk to. But I've I've seen folks say that it really tells you what you want. Like if you asked why is on the margin a better podcast than Forward Guidance, it would say because blah 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 blah. It would give all these valid reasons. If you ask the reverse question, it would give you all these you know reasons, and it would it, you know if you say why uh, why are Republicans better than Democrats? Why is Democrats better than Republicans? It will tell you the answer that they want you to hear. And that raises ethical questions that are uh, beyond the, the scope of, of our conversation for sure. But should we leave yeah. it there? Yeah, let's leave it there. Jack, this has been a fun one, my friend. Mark, we missed you this week. See you soon, yeah. buddy. Thanks, thanks Mike. And uh, looking forward to next time you're on, Mark.